started. So welcome everybody. This is our last uh, of our eight series of mini retreats. This is the last one. And uh, today we'll be exploring the seventh factor of awakening, the seventh factor of enlightenment, which is equanimity, upekka in Pali. I'm not gonna to say too much about it right now. I'd like to get started with practice. And this will be a semi, semi we could say, semi-guided practice today. So sitting yourself in a comfortable seat. On a cushion on the floor, in a chair maybe on a couch. Looks like everybody's inside today. Settling into your body. Letting the body, the heart and the mind relax. And settle into really just simply being here here being wherever you are. Feeling the body. You might do a scan from the toes to the head, the head to the toes, and just checking out where there's tightness, where there's contraction. And as you move through those areas, allowing it to soften, allowing some release, not forcing anything, the softening and the release comes about by relaxing just a little bit more. Staying really present. And just a couple of words about equanimity. So opening the ear doors. 
equanimity can be described as the balance or the evenness of the mind, heart, and body, and the balance of energy. This quality, we could say, this quality of equanimity, this quality of heart-mind that remains centered without inclining towards one extreme or the other. It's sometimes described as immeasurable impartiality. One of the primary energies that counters equanimity, that usurps equanimity, that keeps us from this balanced even, evenness of mind and heart are all the various forms of fear. Often underneath irritation, anger, nervousness, uneasiness, anxiety, worry, dread, panic. Underneath all of that, underneath not so far with some of it, is some degree of fear. So this morning with our sit, we'll work with, with these varying manifestations that you may not call fear, but that fear is underneath. In relationship to the balance of the heart-mind. And we'll begin our practice, our sitting practice this morning. Bringing attention into the body as we already have done to some degree. So now reconnecting with your body, sitting in this very simple way. whole body sense of the posture, noticing the touch points, contact points, your bottom against the cushion floor, maybe the contact of the back against the back of a chair or couch. Noticing touch points with hands, touching each other, or legs and hands touching, keeping it very simple, sitting touching.
And when the breath becomes apparent in your field of mindful presence, then turning your mindful attention directly into the sensations of breath. And we'll spend some moments now allowing our attention to settle and focus. Bringing the interest energy, mindful presence, begin focusing the attention in a gentle way, but with intention on the sensations of the in-breath and the sensations of the out-breath. Finding your anapana spot, your mindfulness of breathing spot, And we'll spend about 10 minutes letting the energy of our practice gather the mind, heart, and body gather. Bringing mindful focus of attention directly into the in-breath sensations and the out-breath sensations. Keeping it really simple. Returning again and again as you need to when the attention wanders off. No judgment, no discussion about this. Just a recognition. And just beginning again. Continuing to settle gathering in the energy. With the potential of a lightness of being in relationship to connecting with this beautiful breath. The sensations of this beautiful breath.
And now gently, not in a jarring or sudden way, but gently. Bring to mind something from this past week during your meditation or during your daily life, or maybe something since we began this mini retreat together that created some degree of unease, maybe some degree of anxiety or worry or tension or nervousness. Some degree of fear, if you will. Just bring it to mind gently. Stay in the body and notice how that unease or anxiety, worry, nervousness, tension, fear is expressing itself in the body, bringing mindfulness, investigation. Interest energy. And focusing the attention. How is it in the body in relationship to your experience of unease or anxiety or worry or nervousness, tension, fear. Don't get caught up in the story. Don't keep going over the story. Just take a look in the body. How's it showing up? Sensorially. not running away from it, not trying to fix it, but really taking an interest. How is this tension? How is this worry, this anxiety, this fear showing up in my body right now? Whether it's mild, medium or strong, how is it? Notice how it moves and changes where it is. What happens to it? Is it solid? Is it static? Is it changing and moving?
noticing the pattern in your body. Where is it? Is that pattern familiar? Is there fear of it? Noticing this. And if there's fear of it, does that increase the experience of anxiety, worry, tension, fear? Recognizing. How is it? Now taking a look at the mind, the mental state, the mood, the emotional coloring in the mind of fear. The mental state, the mood, the emotional coloring in the mind of anxiety, worry, nervousness, tension. How is this? Really taking an interest. How is it? Not discussing it with yourself, but making a direct connection. How is it? Take your time. Receiving these experiences that we often shut off to, run away from, ignore, pretend aren't happening, or feel completely caught and underwater with them. How is it in the body? How is it in the mind? There's no form of life on this planet that doesn't experience anxiety, worry, tension, fear in the body and in the mind. How is it?
not forcing anything, not forcing attention, receiving the experience rather than forcing your attention into it, receiving it. Are you able to notice the point at which the physical state and the mental state of fear is no longer present? Mindfully noticing this. Maybe no longer present for a moment, or maybe no longer present for a longer, more sustained period of time. mindfully noticing any mental response or mental reaction to the bodily sensations or mental state of fear. Mindfulness of the mind. Developing these capacities is a great gift in your life. Overall, in any circumstance. Is it possible for equanimity, this balance and evenness 
of mind and heart. This quality of heart-mind that remains centered without inclining towards one extreme or the other. Is it possible for equanimity to be present in relationship to the mental and physical experiences of fear or anxiety, nervousness, tension, worry? Notice this. Are you identified? Do you believe in and are identified with the physical and the mental reactions to fear, with the physical and mental experiences and then reactions to fear? Recognize this. More fear comes. Recognize this. Can you relax, open, and be receptive? Is it possible for equanimity to be present in relationship to the physical and mental state of anxiety or worry. Nervousness, tension, fear. And what happens if equanimity starts to make its way in? What is your experience then? What is your experience as a sense of evenness and balance of heart-mind? As a sense of immeasurable impartiality begins to make its way in to your experience. And again, lastly, not forcing anything. Letting go of expectations. Just being mindfully present, receptive, 
interested. And not analytically trying to fix it trying to suss it out, mindfully present, open and interested to the direct experiences in your own experience, in your own way. How is it? making the practice your own.
And now for the last five minutes or so of the practice, letting go of worry, anxiety, tension, the various permutations of fear that you've been exploring and letting go of any story that has come up to fuel these energies just letting it go, letting it be. And coming back to mindfulness of breathing at your touching point, you are upon a spot. And simply being present, alert, connected. to the sensations of an in-breath and an out-breath. Relaxing. And noticing. A gentle, light, investigative relationship keeping it light, receptive, a lightness of being. focus of attention. Calm, tranquility, and ease of being. And letting the natural balance of mind and heart. Open up, receiving it. A sense of centeredness, well-being. clarity and presence.
May all of the wholesome energies and the fruits that manifest through our practice serve with immeasurable impartiality, without bias, without prejudice, towards the welfare, the happiness, and the awakening of all beings everywhere, which of course includes ourselves. So it's time now for some walking meditation or stretching meditation, which you can uh, do sitting or standing, moving, staying very mindful. Please do move your body. It will take 10 minutes. And allowing yourself to be embodied So being aware of the movement, mindfully present in the movement, whether it's walking or sitting down or standing. And continuing to reconnect again and again with breath and with the quality or mood of the heart-mind. How is it? And I'll ring the bell in 10 minutes and we'll come back together.
Hello everyone. I guess you're all here, I think. Hard to tell sometimes. Everybody's here. So I'd like to offer some Dhamma reflection regarding equanimity. <clears throat> so settling into your seat. Body, heart, mind relaxed, receptive and ear doors open and receptive. And beginning with a poem by William Butler Yeats. We can make our minds so like still water that the beings gather about us so that they see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. Here in Taos, New Mexico, where I live, 
we have what's considered to be a sacred mountain. And this sacred mountain is just one actually amongst many uh, high mountains that surround the Taos Valley. This mountain is actually within the Taos Pueblo, the village of the Tiwa Indians that sits on the north edge of the town of Taos. And this particular mountain is sacred to the Tiwa people. It's also a sacred symbol for many Taosenos. And I have the great good fortune to be able to look out at it and, and to take it in, in any season, any time of the day or night, on any day of the year, as it's quite clearly visible from where I live. This mountain, any mountain, it just simply sits where it is. The sun shines on it and rain and hail fall on it. Snow covers it, lightning strikes it sometimes. Fire occasionally rages on it. All sorts of life forms are born and die on it, living out their particular life patterns on and with the mountain. And the mountain remains unshakable, unwavering. The mountain of radical acceptance, the mountain of impartiality, the mountain of equanimity. The mountain itself is a live energy, but it only exists in relationship to all of the myriad, lively, constantly changing energies that constitute it. The mountain appropriately sustains and supports the activity that's intricately and intimately connected to it. The mountain of equanimity doesn't cling on. It isn't attached or averse to anything. We might say that it lets life live through itself, closing off to nothing and holding on to nothing. And all of this happens with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance. And so we begin our exploration of upeka in Pali, equanimity in English. A very powerful force in our practice, a powerful force in the whole of our life. In the Buddhist teachings, it's included as one of the 10 paramis, one of the 10 perfections of character to be developed. It's also one of the four Brahma-viharas, one of the four divining, divine abidings, which are metta, unconditional loving kindness and care, unconditional friendship, karuna, compassion, mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy, and the fourth of these divine abidings being equanimity. And upeka is one of the two factors of mind that are present in the very deep and absorbed concentration of the fourth jhana or the fourth level of concentration. And then last, but certainly not least, equanimity is the seventh or the final uh, 
the last of the seven factors of awakening, the last of the seven factors of enlightenment that we've all been exploring for the last seven weeks. During the second half of the eighth century in China, there was a civil war that ushered in famine and disease that was so devastating that two out of three Chinese people died. The population in this part of China shrunk by two thirds in about 10 years. One of the great Chinese poets of the time, of this time, who lived in this particular area of China, wrote a poem that, called, that he called The View This Spring. And this poem contained just two lines. This is the poem. The nation is destroyed. Mountains and rivers remain. What do the Buddhist teachings and practices have to offer us in times of stress and times of turbulence and uncertainty? I think that it's really quite a radical notion that we cultivate, that when we cultivate an equanimous heart-mind, even the most extreme external and also internal circumstances don't necessarily throw us off balance. What is equanimity? What isn't equanimity? How does it act? What are some of its results? Upeka, equanimity, was the final factor to come into maturity before Siddhartha Gautama attained full awakening, attained full enlightenment as he sat under the Bodhi tree on that now famous night with an evenness and balance in his relaxed and powerful presence within his amazing grace as though he were an immovable mountain, seeing things clearly and relinquishing, letting go relinquishing every attachment to all formations of body and mind. And then breaking through to the great awakening, breaking through to the complete ending of suffering. Equanimity is the fearlessness, the power and the equilibrium of the mind, the heart, to experience all kinds of change. The fearlessness, the power, and the balance of heart and mind to experience every sort of manifestation and change in relationship to all of our internal experiences and in relationship to all of the external phenomena that we encounter. Whether these experiences are pleasant or unpleasant as they arise, as they change, and as they pass away. Our practice offers us the possibility to more and more clearly observe, 
recognize and look on with equanimity in relationship to our own body-mind process and in relationship to our world. Clearly seeing and knowing that things are always, always changing, always getting broken and mended and broken again. And yet there's also something that never breaks. So again, as our, as our practice develops and deepens, we more clearly come to sense, see, and know that everything arises and everything falls away. Coming and going all the time. And at the same time, we begin to sense, see, and know that in the moments of all of this, things go nowhere at all. Through our practice, we can grow into seeing and knowing all of this, not as two separate ways of seeing, but rather as one clear and seamless way, one seamless field of vision. The Buddha described what he called six-limbed equanimity, meaning equanimity in relationship to what comes in at each of the six sense doors, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and the mind door. This six-limbed equanimity was described as equanimity of one whose afflictive states or cankers, as the Buddha often quite graphically called them, have been destroyed, destroyed temporarily or destroyed completely, finally. And one who abides in the natural state of purity in relationship to desirable or undesirable objects that come into focus at any of the six sense doors. In some words from the Buddha, here a meditator whose cankers are destroyed, is neither overjoyed nor distraught on seeing a visible object with the eye, hearing an, aud an audible sound with the ear, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. She, he dwells in equanimity, mindful and fully aware. Equanimity is the fearlessness, great strength and ease of the mind, the heart, to remain centered and unmoved in the midst of it all. The literal translation of upekka or equanimity is on looking. So equanimity looks on at the occurrence of physical and mental pleasure and pain by maintaining a neutral mode, by staying in the center we could stay, staying in the, staying in the middle, watching things as they arise and as they pass. On looking, it sees them fairly without any favoritism, without any bias, without partiality. So we could say that the function of equanimity is to inhibit 
partiality. Consequently, equanimity manifests as neutrality. Upeka is the equipoise, the balance or equilibrium between the opposing forces in the mind of the desired and the undesired. This equipoise of upeka offsets the weightiness of greed and the weightiness of aversion. It's that point of balance in the middle of the seesaw of life. The mind, the heart doesn't move towards, nor does it move away. I remember as a child that I love to find that point of balance when I was playing on the seesaw or the teeter-totter as we called it with another child. Both of us suspended perfectly balanced in our teeter-totter seat in mid-air. Maybe some of you experienced that. There was always for me a kind of happy and almost breathtaking feeling inside me in the moments when this happened. The poet T.S. Eliot said it quite beautifully. And these are his, this is his poem. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance and there is only the dance. This still point of equanimity is a place of protection, while at the same time being an experience of great spaciousness and strength of mind, great spaciousness and strength of heart. To bring a very practical understanding of this, we can use the metaphor as the Buddha did of putting a spoonful of salt into a cup of water. Because of the small container, the water will be extremely salty, quite harsh, undrinkable. But on the other hand, if we put a spoonful of salt into a large body of water, say the size of the Rio Grande River, which is the largest uh, river here in New Mexico, it won't have the same effect, of course. Why? Because of the enormous amount of water, because of the great fluidity and spaciousness that the salt is poured into. And as each one of us knows, life can certainly be quite salty at times, right? <laughs> it's just how it is. 
one aspect of the development of equanimity is about creating the spaciousness of mind and heart with which we can meet and look on at all of life's everyday experiences, as well as all the subtleties of the internal and external phenomena that we come to see and know through our practice. To look on with balance, to look on with equipoise, to look on with the heart of greatness, with what is called in the suttas, in relationship to equanimity as a factor of awakening, to look on with what's called specific neutrality. So what does this mean, specific neutrality? It means that whatever states of consciousness are present, which may be any of the three immeasurable qualities of mind and heart of the divine abiding, say metta and compassion and mudita, or any of the six awakening factors of mind that we've been looking at, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, and concentration, as well as other qualities of mind and heart, such as patience and faith. So in relationship to any and all of this, specific neutrality means that each and all of these states of heart and mind are met, experienced, and seen, looked on at, evenly, with neutrality, through the balance of an equanimous heart-mind. There's a a wonderful little book of teachings from the 12th century from Zen master Dogen called How to Cook Your Life. How to Cook Your Life. Where Dogen uses the work of the monastery cook and our relationships to food to teach us in this case about equanimity. And we of course can bring this teaching immediately close into our own life when we're home cooking for ourselves, cooking for friends, cooking for family. And this is from Dogen. Handle even a single leaf of a green in such a way that it manifests the body of the Buddha. This in turn allows the Buddha to manifest through the leaf. This is a power you cannot grasp with your rational mind. It operates freely according to the situation in a most natural way. At the same time, this power functions in our lives to clarify and settle activities and is beneficial to all living beings. And he goes on, a dish is not necessarily superior because you have prepared it with choice ingredients, nor is a soup inferior because you have made it with ordinary greens. When handling and selecting greens, do so wholeheartedly with a pure mind and without trying to evaluate their quality in the same way in which you would prepare a splendid feast. And he says, in practicing the Dharma, Delicious and ordinary tastes are the same, not two. There's an old saying, the mouth of a monk, 
The mouth of a Dhamma student, the mouth of a meditator is like an oven. And what he means is, and it's the, the words come from his time, of course, just as an oven burns both sandalwood for incense and cow dung for cooking, without distinction, our mouths should be the same. There should be no distinction, distinction between delicious food and food which is plain and simple. We should be satisfied with whatever we receive. So how to cook your mind from Dogen. How does one look on at the mind with equanimity? What contributes to this looking on in this way? What contributes to this capacity of relating to all things with equanimity? So a, a really simple example in relationship to our med meditation practice, and maybe in the sit today before this Dhamma reflection, you're sitting. And at one point you notice that the mind and the body are calm, maybe even serene and tranquil. And this is known. And you recognize that the focusing power of the mind concentration is evenly and is repeatedly connecting with whatever the object of attention is. Maybe the breath sensations or other sensations in the body. The mind isn't listless. The mind isn't agitated, but rather it's interested and appropriately energized. At times like this, there isn't any interest in or necessity for exerting, restraining, or encouraging the mind in any way. In relationship to our practice and in relationship to our life as our practice, just simply and clearly recognizing, acknowledging, and noting that this is what's occurring that these factors of mind are in place for however long, maybe briefly, or maybe for a longer period of time. And very, very important, but not always so easy, doing this without any attachment or self-identification. This process and aspect of practice is actually something that contributes to the blossoming of the state of equanimity, consequently contributing to our capacity to relate to all things, to relate to all phenomena with equipoise and composure. During the time in the culture of the Buddha, his metaphor for the mind when it's in this mode was this. One is like a charioteer who looks with equanimity on horses progressing evenly. Well, that's probably not the case for most of us or any of us maybe. So in our case, the metaphor might be 
One is like the driver of a car who looks on with equanimity in a car that's running along evenly when it's set on cruise control. We're able to see and to know, we're able to take in what's in front of us and what's passing by with ease. And of course, as we all know from our own experience, our own life and our meditation practice experience, until equanimity is really, truly matured, we lose and regain our balance over and over and over again. Quite a number of years ago, for the whole of the last two weeks of a long retreat that I was sitting, I practiced equanimity for those last two weeks. And I practiced it in the way that it's practiced as a divine abiding, as a Brahma Vihara, silently repeating one equanimity phrase over and over and over again, day and night, first directing it to myself, and then on through all of the same categories that one uses for metta practice. The practice phrase that I used was this. I am the heir or I am the owner of my own karma or kama, meaning I am the heir, the owner of my actions of mind, speech, and body. And the phrase went on. My happiness or suffering depends upon my actions, not upon my wishes for myself. I repeated this phrase hundreds and hundreds of times over two weeks, day and night. Well, by the end of those two weeks, there was quite a deep and quiet sense of balance, balance and evenness and neutrality in the mind and the heart. A day or two before the end of the retreat, the thought came up, well, there's equanimity here seems to be a fairly deep and fairly abiding equanimity. And the next thought that came up was, I wonder if there's an equanimity test. Hmm. If this were a Zen retreat, any good Zen teacher would do something creatively startling to check my equanimity. But, but this is a Vipassana retreat, and Vipassana teachers don't do things like that. And then all of those thoughts just just disappeared. Well, later that day, that same day, I was startled in true Vipassana fashion, an equanimity test Vipassana style. I got a note that was signed by one of my equanimity teachers, though the note was actually from all five of the teachers that were teaching that retreat. And the note said, we would like you to give the Donna talk. We would like you to give the generosity talk to the retreatants tomorrow. Well, that was startling and shocking in the midst of my equanimity. I was not a Dhamma teacher at that point. I had no intention to be a Dhamma teacher at that point. And they were asking me to give 
a talk to a hundred people. Well, for a moment, equanimity flew right out the window and my heart felt like it stopped. And the old habit of fear flew right in. I can't, I can't do this now, said my old habit. I've been silent for so many weeks and so deeply into practice. I cannot get up in front of all my fellow retreatants and speak. It's absolutely impossible. I can't do it. And then the heart and the mind relaxed and it recognized what had just occurred. And the thought came in, ah, ah, yes, this is my equanimity test. And I can do it and I want to do it. And at that moment, a tremendous, tremendous flood of gratitude came into the mind and heart. Gratitude for the teachers, gratitude for the retreat center staff, for the teachings, for the practice. And just as suddenly as it had disappeared, equanimity was back. What I was being asked to do felt like the most natural thing in the world to be doing at that point. So again, until equanimity has matured, we lose and we regain the balance and equipoise of equanimity over and over and over again. Upeka manifests as quieting fear, quieting dislike, resentment, and the self-judgment that can sometimes manifest as guilt or disapproval, and the feeling that I'm not good enough. It also manifests as quieting liking, pride, attachment, and the judgment of approval in relationship to what we think of as ourself, me, my experiences. Equanimity also manifests in quieting the attachment or the fear that comes up in relationship to others. When equanimity is, has arisen and it's developing, in those moments, fear, resentment, attachment, and identification, along with the judgments of approval or disapproval, all of that subsides. Within the clear space of a momentary or longer, really true neutrality, there's nothing for greed and nothing for aversion to stick to when they arise. And I'm, I'm sure that every one of us has experienced the pretense of equanimity within ourselves in the midst of greed or dislike, in the midst of resentment or anger or fear or disappointment. The glossing over or ignoring these states and pretending, the pretense, pretending to ourselves, the pretense of equanimity, well, well, it doesn't really matter. This doesn't really matter, that kind of an attitude. Or, well, it's, it's all just fine, really, it's all just fine. Or, well, I'm totally fine, I'm just fine. All of these things that we tell ourselves 
often accompanied maybe by a slight or maybe not so slight moving away from a mental and a physical contraction, which is not equanimity, but is actually indifference. Indifference being the near enemy of equanimity. Indifference masquerading as upeka. Indifference is actually a state of separation in relationship to ourselves and in relationship to whoever or whatever we're around. And of course, we also know from our own experience that when we're really inflamed with greed and dislike and anger and fear or disappointment or resentment, it's extremely difficult or maybe not even the least bit possible to look on at those moments with the true equanimity. Upeka is based in an, in a, an attentive, clear, presence of mind, not on dullness or indifference. And it's not a kind of casual passing mood, nor is it produced by exertion, and it is not created by the intellect. It's the result of, it's one of the fruits of our practice, the fruit of training the mind, training the heart through the development and the blossoming of the factors of mindfulness, investigation, a balanced effort, joy, tranquility, and concentration, along with the heart qualities of loving kindness and compassion. True equanimity is our capacity to meet all of the vicissitudes of life what the Buddha called the eight worldly winds. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame or distinction, and disrepute or disrespect or disregard. These flip-flops which come our way throughout our life. True equanimity is our capacity to meet all of this with a heart, a mind that's strong, fearless, centered, and at ease. True equanimity is able to meet these worldly winds, as the Buddha called them, which we, as we each know, may sometimes feel like pretty harsh tests. But equanimity is eat quickly able to regenerate its strength from our inner resources, the resources that have been developed through our diligent practice. And some words from the Buddha. Develop the mind of equilibrium. You will always be getting praise and blame but do not let either affect the poise of the mind. Follow the calmness, the absence of pride. There's an amazing practice that 
uh, was occasionally practiced by the Hopi Indians. I don't know that they do it anymore. And I don't recommend this practice, but we can take it as a metaphor for us in relationship to the cultivation and the manifestation of the power of fearlessness, evenness of mind and heart, and the protection that is one of the great strengths of equanimity. And this is from a book by Frank Waters called The Book of the Hopi, as was told to him by Koa Huayma. And this is, this is from the book, directly from the book. There were all kinds of snakes, rattlesnakes, big bull snakes, racers, sidewinders, gopher snakes, about 60 all tangled on the floor. The singing stirred them. They moved in one direction, then another, looking over all the men in the circle. The men never moved. They just kept singing with a kind expression on their faces. The snakes began to roll in the sand, taking their bath. Then a big yellow rattler moved towards an old man sitting with his eyes closed, climbed up his crossed leg, coiled in front of his breech cloth, and went to sleep. Pretty soon, this old man had five or six snakes crawling over his body, raising their head to look at his closed eyes and peaceful face, then going to sleep. It showed that they had found their friend, looking within the heart of this one upon whose body they chose to rest. That is... <clears throat> That is the way snakes show who are good and kind men with pure hearts. <laughs> Don't try the practice, please. True equanimity will possess the power of protection and a wholesome, a wholesome resistance in relationship to the mind, the heart, getting seduced by and caught up in states of fear, greed, and aversion. It also possesses the power of renewing itself, but only, only if it's deeply rooted in a growing insight into the true nature of things. One of the particular insights that I'd like to spend just a little bit of time exploring with you today is that as it develops and eventually ripens into insight is one of the primary roots of equanimity. And this is our growing clarity in understanding how the vicissitudes, how the eight worldly winds of life, how they originate, how they come to be. And this is the understanding of karma or kama in Pali. The understanding that the various experiences of stress, of suffering, and the experiences of ease are the result of our kama, meaning the results of our actions, our actions, thought, speech, and deed, right here and now, and then on back and back and back. This is kama or karma. This is our kama. 
we're born. We spring out of the womb of Kama. And even though we may or may not like it at times, we are undeniably the heirs of our Kama. So for instance, just as soon as we've spoken words or performed any action, we've totally lost control over it. And yet it remains with us. And in some way, inevitably returns to us as our due inheritance, we could say. And I know, I know that this can sometimes be uncomfortable to hear. So please, please listen carefully, listen mindfully, and please hear me out. We could say that everything that happens and the ease or dis-ease that is in our heart, mind, is the outcome of our own mind's relationship to all of the happenings in life, internally and externally. Our suffering and our happiness in this life at any given moment is due to our own mind. Not due to our wishes for ourselves. And not due to some other person or some outer antagonistic or seemingly strange or foreign world. As this understanding takes root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. And so is the first basis of equanimity. When in fact, with everything that happens around us and within us, we begin to see that we only meet ourselves. What is there to fear? The heart begins to relax. And we begin to know that we can change our mind. That in fact, we're not trapped on the karmic wheel running around and around like a little mouse. We begin to know that we can act in skillful ways from a place of heart, mind, balance, and fearlessness. But of course, as we've all experienced fear, uncertainty, and insecurity arise along the way. And at the same time, as we traverse this path, we clearly begin to see and to know that the refuge where fear can be dispelled is through our good deeds. Refuge from this perspective is in wholesome thought, wholesome motivations, wholesome words, and performing wholesome actions. As we take this refuge, there comes to be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past 
and a growing courage to perform more and more wholesome deeds right now, even in the midst of what might be some hardship in our current life. Our practice itself, this incredible training of the heart-mind is a very good deed, really the very best deed and the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in through all aspects of our life. One of the things that's been really important for me in understanding Kama is that it's always, always the right time to perform wholesome, wholesome actions. It's always the right time to, good, to do good deeds. It's never too late, never. And so we practice this. And it becomes established in us. And it becomes a refuge. And at some point we know for sure, as was said by one of the Buddha's disciples, more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else then can the future bring other than an increase of the good? As this becomes more and more certainty in our heart and mind, the mind becomes more tranquil, more serene. And we gain the great strength of a patient heart and the evenness and balance of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and difficulties in our practice and in our life as a whole. Along the way of our practice with the development and blossoming of a growing degree of equanimity, which the Buddha called relative equanimity, we find that we in fact then have the strength to endure when we need that, when we need to endure, and to see clearly when that's what's being called for. We have the possibility of not continuing to blindly fall into the same holes over and over and over again, but to begin to walk down a different street. The understanding of Kama can imbue us with a powerful motivation to free ourselves from Kama to free ourselves from the actions that again and again and again throw us into repeated suffering. At some point along the way of our practice, equanimity will evolve from being relative equanimity to absolute equanimity. In the progress of insight, when equanimity is strong, fulfilled and mature, concentration and insight, concentration and understanding occur coupled together without either one exceeding the other, along with an imbalance with all of the factors of awakening. With all of these occurring at that point with what has been called a single taste the single taste of liberation, the single taste of deliverance from suffering. Every moment, every circumstance is another opportunity to experience things as they are, 
rather than as we wish or as we fear them to be. As we drop more deeply into the presence and the wisdom within our own heart-mind of equanimity in relationship to the way of things, we're rendered free to use this great treasure to respond rather than react to the life within us and the life around us. As Buddhist teacher Joan Sutherland said, it is our freedom to fall willingly into the frightened, blasted, beautiful, tender world as it is. To know ourselves that we have, to know ourselves that we have that treasure and that we're free to use it, no matter the circumstances. And a short piece from the Buddha, from the Udana, the inspired utterances of the Buddha, whose, man, whose mind stands like a mountain, steady, it is not perturbed, unattached to things that arouse attachment, unangered by things that provoke anger. When her or his mind is cultivated thus, how can suffering come to her? How can suffering? come to him. And closing today's reflection with a poem from William Stafford called The Way It Is. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you're pursuing. You have to explain about the thread, but it's hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop time's unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. And let's sit quietly for just a few moments.
Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. And thank you for your practice. So we'll take just a couple of moments now. Just stand up, move your body, stretch your arms, stretch your legs, or sit down and move your body, stretch your arms, stretch your legs, stretch your neck. See people stretching their neck. Very important. Arms up, opening, <sighs> opening the whole body, the heart center, the whole center of the body. Arms up. Oh. Breathing out through the mouth. <sighs> Relaxing. <sighs> Sitting back down again. Still stretching my back. <laughs> it needs it. Oh, yes. Coming back into your seat. Our manager, Carol, from the island of Kauai, where it's warm and maybe raining because it's the, one of the rainiest places on the planet. She keeps telling me. <laughs> she has a few words to uh, share with you. And, and then uh, I'll be back in just a few moments. And we'll do our discussion, Q&A, sharing time. So Carol, it's all yours. And I'm just going to move away for a few minutes here. Be back shortly. Great. Thank you, Marcia. You're welcome. Thank you. Mm -hmm. It's, it's actually sunny here today, which is nice. <laughs> so I just wanted to take a few moments to talk about Donna, um, the practice of cultivating generosity. Um, in the Buddhist tradition, the teachings are given freely because they are considered priceless. In the Buddhist tradition, we also practice Donna or generosity by making monetary offerings for the teachings. Dana is not payment for goods or services rendered. It is given from the heart. Your generosity is a gift that supports not just the teachers, but also the Sangha, the larger Dharma community, and your own practice. That's a quote from teacher Philip Moffat. So I just wanted to um, encourage all of us to uh, think about what... Um, we would each like to give and we're able to give um, for Donna and especially focusing on um, Donna for Marcia, for our amazing teacher who has just uh, given us an incredible gift of the Dharma. And um, so there are two ways to donate, which um, most of you are, maybe everybody is already aware of, but I'll just review them just in case. Um, 
So you can go to the Network for Good, which is on the Mountain Hermitage website. There is also a link um, in the Google Drive that we've been using for this, this meditation retreat. And um, there you can uh, make a donation. And um, there's a section on there that um, is uh, where you can designate where you would like your funds to go. So um, in, in the notes in there, you would write uh, for Marcia, for the teacher, um, or you could also give to the, the Mountain Hermitage General Fund, but just to distinguish how much goes to, goes, goes where. Um, and then the other way is to also um, pay by check that you can mail to the Mountain Hermitage. And the address is also on the Google Drive uh, in the instructions there as well. And also on the website, the Mountain Hermitage website. And uh, please make your checks out to the Mountain Hermitage. And then um, include a note of, again, where you, you would like your funds designated. So if you um, want your Donna to go to Marcia, the teacher, then you would make a note of that um, or to the, the Mountain Hermitage General Fund. Or if you would like to split your amount, <clears throat> giving different portions to either one, just designate that in a, in a note along with your check, but make your check out to the Mountain Hermitage. Um, does anybody have any questions about how to give Donna at this point? Okay, great. I don't see any questions right now. So thank you. Thank you all for your attention. And it's been such a pleasure to experience this retreat with all of you. So we'll just wait for Marcia to come back. Hello. Thank you, Carol. Yes. Thank you, Marcia. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure, really. So we have time uh, to share some words with you all, you all sharing words with each other. Anything about your practice? Uh, anything you'd like to say about the, the eight, uh, eight Sundays we've spent together? exploring the factors of awakening, anything specific in terms of your experience. Um, and you might have questions, which I try to answer as best I can. I often reflect, not always, but very often reflect on what you're sharing, but not necessarily so. So please, uh, it's an open, open time for anybody who might like to speak. And again, uh, Carol will watch for the little Zoom hands <laughs> that might show up so that we can have some method to the madness here. It's not too chaotic. You can also raise your, your hand 
if you'd like. And Carol, and I'll keep an eye too, but it's hard for me to, if I'm responding to you each or some of you, uh, it's hard for me to watch at the same time for the hands. So Carol's, Carol's are kind of our monitor for that. So it's open as you wish, please. A silent group. <laughs> uh, it looks like Mark. Oh, Mark. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Hello. Uh, hi, hi. I wanted to ask you if you could, will you speak more about the difference between equanimity and indifference? Mm -hmm. They're not anything alike. I'll say that first. It's hard to mix them up. <laughs> Although people do get confused. I mean, that's why I bring it up and why in the teachings uh, they come up. The Buddha brought it up as well. When you're indifferent, to, I have to find you again. Where are you, Mark? I've lost you. There you are over there. Okay. When you feel indifferent in relationship to um, anything, another person, uh, a particular experience. Um, what, how did, how is that? What does that feel like? You tell me. Well, um, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes when I feel indifferent, I, th I mean, I, th I, Okay, let me say. Um, yeah. Sometimes I'm being indifferent when I think I'm being equanimous. Well, that's why you asked the question, so, obviously. Yeah. So I'm a little. I, I want you to tell me what indifference, what your experience of indifference is. What does it feel like? Okay. So um, it feels like uh, a stepping back and sort of a. Okay, so I, I can feel a sort of closing down. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that that's, I, I mean, to, so I say to myself, well, that's okay, because you're not, you're not becoming emotional or anxious or anger, angry. Uh-huh, that's your goal then, to not become emotional or anxious or angry. So you step back. Yeah. Uh, are you connected to the experience or to the person? Do you feel a connection? Oh, almost always. When you're stepping back? Uh, well, I mean, I feel a connection. That's why I have these uh, different things that come up because I'm... The, un I'm, the uncomfortable feelings that come up. Yes. yes. Uh -huh. But when you shut down, close off, you're, you're muted now, Mark. Unmute yourself. There, thank you. Um, when you're when you close off, step back, close off, shut down. Uh, well, in some sense, it it feels okay because then I'm not becoming emotional or anything like that. Yes. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, it feels okay because you've disengaged. Yes. From the situation. That's it. 
and you don't like feeling uncomfortable. You don't like, none of us like to be uncomfortable, do we? Does anybody here love being uncomfortable? <laughs> be honest. I mean, some people do, you know, they're so used to it. They don't, they do. Okay. Yeah. But if we've done okay. enough Dhamma practice, we, we recognize discomfort is unpleasant. It's unpleasant. Yes. And um, so sometimes we, sometimes it's healthy to shut oneself off because it's overwhelming. We feel overwhelmed. It's so uncomfortable. So we step back, we shut off, but that is not equanimity. That okay. is in some circumstances, and I'm particularly picking up on that particular circumstance, when we're overwhelmed, we step back as in a wise way as a protection, okay. but that's not equanimity. We recognize what it is. I, I, I've had enough. I cannot. I cannot manage. I'm stepping back. We can be equanimous about stepping back. We can look at the need and the wise movement to step back with equanimity. <laughs> does that make sense to you, Mark? Yes. Yes, it does. But the stepping back itself is not equanimity. It is just that. It is a shutdown, a cutoff. Because, um, and I, there's lots of reasons we do that, and sometimes it's not the, a wholesome thing to do. Or uh, it, it's, it's so, um, it, it's not connected, and we could stay, but we don't. But sometimes it is. So I'm just using that time when it is wise to step back. And then we open up and recognize this is wisdom. This needs to happen now. It is okay. And you're, there's, a, there's a degree of relative equanimity in relationship to what we've just done. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, it does very much. Okay. Okay. Does anybody else want to speak to this? This is a, actually an important uh, and quite common human endeavor. Edle. Unmute, please. I'm unmuting. Okay. Hi. Yes, course, hi. Thank you so much, Marcia. It's been an incredible journey again, and just I'm loving it. And um, last week, actually, it was just yesterday, I was, no, it was Friday. I was in Santa Fe, and I was doing a job, an install. And when you talk about equanimity blossoming, that it blossoms. Uh, I certainly got that. And the difference between when I'm very on a job that I'm usually very nervous and there's a lot at stake, uh, money, pride, uh, my skills, everything is at stake. I was in a totally different place. I was just there. Mm -hmm. and relaxed and feeling really great about everything that was going on. This was a new experience for me. Mm -hmm. And it just blossomed into it. Um, and I can see, you know, always why this equanimity come at the end of all these alphabet soups or number <laughs> soups. Um, 
<laughs> because, you know, the patience and the concentration it, in the practice is what blossoms into this equanimity at the end. And it's, of course, um, you know, I very often think of what um, Georgia O'Keeffe said. She said, I have been scared all my life, but it never stopped me from doing anything. <laughs> and uh, that is true. I have spent a lot of my life in fear. Mm -hmm. And I am now starting to experience what little glimpses of what life is out without fear. Mm -hmm. And it's really sweet. And, um, and I'm just grateful for the practice and the fact that this is possible to do. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. Thank you, thank you, yes. Andrea, your little Zoom hand is up. Yes, I was, uh, I, I, first of all, I want to say that uh, the practice of Upeka is anything but. And uh, so, exploration <laughs> of fear and all, all the opposites of Upeka. But I had an incident this week where, where, that was um, disturbing and um, I felt like there was a point where I surrendered. Mm. The person questioned mm. our friendship mm -hmm. and it was like threatening me. Well, I won't be your friend anymore. I felt like I was 10 years old. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure if it was a moving away and a defense or whether I was um, really saying, okay, if this is the flow of my life, the way it's going now, mm -hmm. I, and I think it was, both well you can Maybe. go back and forth we can go back and forth for sure okay mm -hmm. but i felt like what upeka was was acceptance yes that's a big part of it mm -hmm. or surrender both mm -hmm. okay and mm -hmm. surrender to me is a, a not a weakness but a um letting go of my will mm-hmm and or, or my ego's the way it should be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I call it, I use, often use the word receptivity, that we're really oh. open and receptive. I don't use the word surrender very often when I teach because it has so many connotations, uh, mm. so many different connotations for different people depending on our conditioning. So I don't use it uh, very often, but I understand the way you're using it. And uh, yes, yes. So you you did have some. It sounds like some uh, some relative equanimity experience, along with maybe at first the way you described it. You you, you pull back. You yeah. felt hurt. You felt maybe confused and hurt, and 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 protected yourself from those difficult and unpleasant feelings by shutting down and then opened up again and said, okay, this is how it is. And then there was a more even and balanced uh, energy in your experience. Is that I'm using somewhat different words than you did, but that's what it sounded like. Mm 
to me. Uh, okay. And then there was something else that happened. And of course, my mind wants to make one thing connected to the other. I don't know if, it, if it's useful. But what happened was when I had that acceptance, or what I call surrender, um, the, the whole thing evaporated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On both sides, mm-hmm. certainly because I, I wasn't trying to do anything anymore. Or, mm-hmm. 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 So, it lost its juice. Yes. <laughs> uh-huh. And how did you feel? What was your, what was your experience when the juice disappeared? Peace. Peace. Okay. Ease. Yeah. A little and, deeper equanimity, we could say, even. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm scared to make the connection that if I accept, then there'll be peace or not, not the other. Person. Yeah, it, it isn't. It's not an automatic always. Terms. Okay. You have to stay, right. stay really mindful, Andrea. Stay really mindful without expectation without expectation in what is going on now, and then now, and then now, and then now. And you'll see, don't, mm-hmm. don't try to make it, don't try to set it up. Yeah, yeah, manipulate. That's a big problem when we try to set it all up. Because what happens when we try to set everything up? Well, it never happens that way, does it? We cannot control, I mean, one of the, big insights we have in the progress of insight with Vipassana practice, one of the first big insights we have, and we have it over and over again until we really, really get it. We don't have control. We do not have control. Yeah. I say that, I'm gonna leave it at that. It's a big discussion, which we're not gonna go into now, but we don't have control. There's so many factors infinite factors that come into any moment of experience, circumstance, we don't have control. We can respond and we we can and we're able as our practice deepens to respond more and more immediately, appropriately uh, as as it goes on. Yeah, so thank you, Andrea. And gratitude, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Olivia, your your Zoom hand is up. It is. Thank you. Um, thank you very much for the teachings, uh, Marcia. I really paid attention during your guided meditation today. So I'm taking my, what I'm going to say is in regards to what Mark asked and you asked us if any of us had this experience. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I went along really well. I could settle down well. Mm-hmm. I, sense all the sensations within the body connecting and everything seemed to be going uh, smoothly. And as you just said, it's pretty obvious to see there's no controller and there's no, that I'm not controlling this. This is happening naturally. But then you asked us to introduce a past fear or an anxiety. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I did that, there was a blockage. Mm -hmm. And I put it down to the fact that 
it's either one of two things, and this is after the fact. Uh, it's either that more anxiety of, or fear arises, and then we get even more confused, uh, we get even more disrupted, or, and a sense of self comes up where you're trying to clear up the disruption um, mm. almost forcefully, mm. almost like I need to win this, I need to push this out. Mm -hmm. And and I think it's it's really obvious that when we lose connection with the direct experience, then everything that's all our narratives in the mind come up and try to play each other out and it gets us nowhere. Yes. So, and I think that's kind of the difference. Um, like if if I stepped back with a sense of self saying, okay, I, I, I won't pursue this now, but I'll think about it a little bit off the bench. Mm -hmm. And that is still indifference. Oh, yeah. It's indifference of a different level. Uh -huh. <laughs> but otherwise, uh, well, I better stop because the letting go and I, at the end of the guided meditation, you suggested that we learn to just let go. And yes. then very gradually, the natural balance will come back again if we have, for me at least, if I have mindful interest as well as attention. Yes. If not, I can get really carried away with stories, which yes. is which is a waste of time. When uh -huh. you uh -huh. And that's what I have to say. Thank you okay. again. I, I'm gonna say something in response to the very first part of what you said. When I suggested that one look into the past week or, or the sitting uh, uh, meditation or uh, something further and deeper in the life of, uh, in one's life for, for an experience of irritation, anxiety, uh, dis-ease, uh, et cetera, fear. Um, you described the first part of your sit uh, as being quite easeful and uh, lovely and you were, you didn't say this, but you were enjoying it. You know, it was, it was uh, 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 an experience over a period of, I don't know how many minutes, 10, 15 minutes, that was uh, agreeable you got attached. Oh. Yes, that's what I wanna say, is that I you, I when listening. I asked you to bring up something and I said it in a certain way, I said, be really gentle, don't crash in. I don't think I used the word crash, but I don't be harsh. I don't remember exactly what I said because it was spontaneous, but uh, don't crash, don't, don't push it, push in with it, but open to it. You resisted that. You didn't want to do it. <clears throat> Why? You didn't recognize it. You were quite attached to your very, very easeful, pleasant experience and you didn't want to let it go. Mm -hmm. So th the thing is to notice, if you had noticed that as part of your practice, it's not separate from our practice. If you, if you had noticed that as part of your practice, you may have 
been able to move into with more uh, with more receptivity and interest and openness into the second part of uh, of what I was uh, suggesting we move into. But you didn't you didn't recognize the attachment, the clinging. Oh, so I just just to mention that it's very important. We're we cling overtly, subtly, and often don't know it. <laughs> okay. so, thank you. Thank you. Thank you too. Yes. So you know, it's time to stop. I feel like we should go on and on here because it's our last one, but we're not going to. <laughs> so, uh, so thank you all so much for being all of us being together for eight weeks. It's been eight weeks, eight Sundays, uh, eight mini retreats and exploring uh, seven factors of awakening one by one. I hope it's been uh, helpful, useful, uh, enlivening and enlightening for, for each of you in, in whatever ways it has been. I, I, I trust that it has been because you keep coming back. So it must be of use. Uh, and uh, I've enjoyed it very much. I hope each of you have and that you've learned, learned a lot, hopefully learned a lot that will serve you as you go on uh, with your life as your practice and with your practice as your practice. <laughs> so thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Marcia. You're very welcome. Thank you, Marcia. Thank, Thank you. you. Marcia. Thank you, Marcia. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Marcia. It has been a fun Marcia. Thank you. Yes. It's quite a sangha we have here. It's wonderful. And, uh, may you continue uh, deepening your practice. That's the best, best gift you can give yourself and give each of us and give the world. That really is, mm. that's the gift of gifts, truly. So take good care. Bye-bye. Thank you, Marcia. Thank you. Bye, Marcia. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, you can't see my face, but I can see you, so bye. Yes, and we hear your voice. Thank you, Batia. Yes. Bye-bye. Yeah. Thank you so very much, Marcia. You're welcome, Jean. I still want to add two more factors in so we can continue. Yes, Jean's got a whole plan here, but. <laughs> I feel attachment also, Jean, but happily I, I look forward to revisiting and just allowing these classes to. Yeah, they're all recorded, video, audio recorded, and they will be up. Uh, they will actually, I didn't mention this, I should have, but I think Kathy did, though, in her e reminders. Uh, they, they will be up on, uh, on um, what's it called? Uh, uh, YouTube. Within a month, if not sooner, uh, they'll be up on YouTube. So, But without the final discussion, we can't put that up on YouTube because we'd have to get permission from every single person who spoke. So we're not doing that. It'll stop at the end of the Dhamma talk, mm -hmm. but it will be up on YouTube. So you can revisit it anytime, anytime once it's up there. 
Yeah, and thank you, Carol, and thank Chris, and I thank Kathy, yeah. you know, all those behind the scenes and in front of the scenes who have made all of this possible for us, yeah. that the, you know, vast network of heart sangha that we could yes. be together. Wonderful. Wow. How fortunate. <laughs> Very and this, this strange technology that I'm so grateful for. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And we're so grateful for your willingness, Marcia, to grow into the technology. Yeah. Well, thanks to Chris and you, I've learned how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, now that I know how to do it, it seems easy. But at first it was like, oh, no, I don't know. I don't know if I can do this. (laughs) It's made such a difference for really the whole two years. Yes. And, and uh, I never imagined that it would be valuable like it's been. And so thank you, Chris and um, Carol and Sarah and Kathy. Yeah. Everybody, lots of energy put into making this happen. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, That is so well put, Michael. Yeah. Zooms have been a highlight of my COVID experience. Yeah, you know, yeah. I think this is the third one that I've seen you both at. Yeah, if I, and what a blessing! Yeah, what a blessing. absolutely. Mm-hmm. What a blessing, Gene. What are the two factors? That you <laughs> <add>? <laughs> I don't want to keep thinking about it. <laughs> no, I I think that patience. Uh, yeah, and yeah. gratitude. Absolutely. Need, need to be added in. And then, Marcia, after those <laughs> do another eight weeks on the Eightfold Path, uh-huh. we'll, we'll keep coming up with numbered lists. <laughs> there are many, many numbered lists in the Dharma. That's for That's sure. Right. That's right. It's working to our advantage, Gene, right? All those, <laughs> uh, all those lists. <laughs> Finally, (laughs) (laughs) these Sunday mornings have just become, uh, to use a word that that you use sometimes, Marcia, these Sunday mornings have become absolute nutriment to my practice. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's the whole point. May it be so. Yes. Yeah. The whole point. Yeah. Yes. So thank you. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Take good care. Hard to say goodbye, isn't it?